welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Lightspeed Venture Partners. Lightspeed is a globally leading venture capital firm with over $29 billion in capital under management and more than 500 investments across the US, Europe, and Asia. With its dedicated gaming practice, Lightspeed Gaming, the firm is investing from over $7 billion in early and growth stage capital, making it by far the largest fund focused on gaming and interactive technology. Lightspeed's team combines deep expertise in gaming with a global multi-stage investment platform and a culture that truly puts founders first. Selected investments include Epic Games, Snap, and Stability AI, as well as game designers and producers who led the creation of titles like Fortnite, Call of Duty, League of Legends, Valorant, StarCraft II, and many more. For more information, simply go to gaming.lsvp.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, Let's jump into the episode. Hi, friends. Welcome to another Navic Roundtable episode. This is true. I am not Devin, if you're wondering, who is this voice? Um, I'm a former host and then turned panelist and today backup host. I'm Maria Gellis, product director at Pixion Games. And today we're joined by Matt Dian, founder of Always Gaming and contributor at Navic, and Felipe Mata, head of studio at Fun Plus Barcelona. Hello. Hello, Hello, Maria. Haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, I have disappeared, but now I'm back like a Pokemon. All right, so today we're going to be covering Google Play and Android blockchain policy, and also some shenanigans with side loading that will be coming through in the EU, and new models of game development, and also our favorite topic, the Activision Blizzard acquisition, but maybe maybe it will be the last time that we talk about it. And before we jump in, uh, I want to say congrats to Seb Park, who's part of the crew. He got a 6 million raise for Infinite Canvas. So congrats, Seb. We're cheering for you. And now I keep talking, but I also have some news. So can someone ask me what my news are? (laughs) Or else it'll be awkward. Please, Maria, share your news. Maria, what's your news? Oh, thank you for asking. <laughs> no, I just made this way more awkward. Um, but I can't. I don't have edit rights anymore as a backup host, so this is staying. Um, so actually, Fable Warren, we just announced our mint with our Launchpad partner, Magic Eden, and you can go and check that out on our Twitter if you want to follow more details. But I am so hyped. That's why I've disappeared. We've been working really hard in getting that through, and so. We're trying to just create a new culture within blockchain gaming. So super, super pumped about that. All right. Yeah. Maybe always scheming um, may cover it. All right. We're going, maybe. (laughs) We'll go to the first update. Uh, Felipe, what do you have for us? Okay. Yeah. It's about Half Moon. That is a new studio uh, that was found by X-Mini Clip Chief Advertising Officer, uh, Peter 
Quidman. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, so sorry if not. Uh, so this new studio has launched its first game just five months after being established, which is, well, quite an achievement. Um, the, the game is called PictoQuiz, and the content of it was developed entirely by using artificial intelligence. So they created a content production pipeline combining different forms of generative AI and also they use, uh, uh, when possible, uh, AI to write code, uh, which resulted in uh, more than 15 hours on, of content for for this game in such a short amount of time, which, wow, is, is impressive. Uh, the next steps for the studio, as they said, uh, is to transform the game into from a single-player experience into a multiplayer game. And the, the studio is considering AI user-generated content, which is, I think, like, a hot topic in, in the industry. I think like we are going to speak about it uh, more deeply later. Uh, so why quite quite remarkable uh, achievement and also probably is is uh, supported by by the backing that the, the studio has been received with angel investors from companies like SpaceApe, Triple Dot, uh, among others, and MiniClip included. So yeah. The, the use of AI in game development is, is starting to become a reality. And like, as the founder mentioned, like big tech is over. Small tech is where it's all. Is, is AI small tech? I mean, it's, it's, small, it's, a, it's a tool, right? So it's like uh, oh, Adobe, Adobe is okay. small tech, Adobe World. It's, it's, there's a big company behind, yeah, but for you, is like a single person can leverage on that, right? So, Got it. Well, Infinite Canvas, uh, Seb's, um, Seb's company that got the raise, they're also really focusing on using Gen AI to support their game dev. So, well, we see VC back, is backing it. And so, yeah, Matt, you're going to cover this. So I think we'll we'll skip this discussion for now. Yeah, just, just uh, put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that. And we're going to come back to this update as well that I'm, I'm about to get into here uh, briefly. Um, so uh, another uh, notable fundraise studio announcement here is Look North World, and this they raised 2.25 million from London venture partners for games in Fortnite, the Unreal editor in Fortnite. Um, this is noteworthy because it comes from Alex Seropian, who was the founder of Industrial Toys and uh, Bungie, and very successful serial games entrepreneur. And I just wanted to give a shout out to this team because I used to work with all of them at Industrial Toys. Um, so a bunch of really smart, really talented uh, game developers, and I wish them the best in their new endeavors here. Their first game is called Outlaw Corral, and it's a Wild West-themed shooter in Fortnite Creative. Um, and they're talking about doing more shooters, maybe expanding into RPGs. Um, and of note for the discussion we're going to have in a little bit, they said that they put this together in like six months. Um, pretty quickly. And so, uh, again, this is on the Unreal Editor in Fortnite. So using a lot of the tools that they've built up and they view this platform as, uh, you know, a, a worthy platform to build on for the future where a lot of activity is going to go. So I'll be interested to see how this goes for them. In your discussion of it later on, are you also going to cover the usage of Fortnite Creative as a game dev platform? Or should I ask questions now? That's why I'm wondering. 
Um, I think we'll get into it a little bit. Um, it's the, the discussion in a little bit is going to be more about changing and shrinking game development timelines. And what does that mean for the industry moving forward? Like the quantity of games that will be released, the velocity at which they'll be made, where does the funding go um, in an environment where games can be created in mm. weeks or months? Um, okay. I'll reserve my questions for them then. All right. All right. So we go on to the next topic, which is Google Play's blockchain policy. And so I just took the opportunity to not only look at Google Play, but do a review of Apple's policy. I put them side by side. And then I, you know, as a product person in mobile, I thought, okay, if I want to publish a single app on these two stores, what do I need to do in order to meet the two policies? Because that's a difficult thing is that at least for the other majority of features and you don't really have to be comparing the two policies side by side. They're pretty much the same. And so there's not this confusion. Um, but with the entrance of blockchain, uh, I guess the yeah, developers will have to decide, do I want to take the opportunities of some differences I have between the platforms and have two different app experiences? Or do we prioritize efficiency um, and just develop one one app that fits the two builds? So just very quickly... Um, I have a long list, but I will try to summarize. So what I brought today is a TLDR so that you don't have to go and read the two policies and build a table and summarize what you need to do. And this, I just want to do a disclaimer. This is my personal understanding. This has not been informed or confirmed by anyone in these platforms. Um, so take it with a pinch of salt and definitely go do your due diligence before you go forward with what I say. So my understanding is you can't use your mecha a mechanism of your own to lock content unless that can be purchased in app. So this is a, an Apple requirement uh, explicitly. You can sell your NFTs in app as long as the payment mechanism is the App Store or Google Play's payment system. We can sell NFTs out of apps. So this is like a gray area, but we see Mythical doing it. And so I don't think it's that gray for now. You can sell the NFTs out of app in your own web marketplace, but it has to follow the rule that it cannot block content within your game unless you're also selling it there. And we also see games deciding to sell it both on their web platform and in games because in game they can reach more people, even if you're taking the 30% cut for the platforms. And then additionally, there's always those rules from the platforms that you can't redirect them outside of the app. But I saw in NFL Rifles, they actually send an inbox message where they say, hey, go to our marketplace and they directly outlink to the marketplace. So I'm not sure if this is an exception or if it's something that we can actually do, but we'll have to see. And then the other thing that you can do is that you can only sell the NFTs in app through direct purchases or where the currency that you use to, to open, for example, the loot box of these NFTs cannot be acquired through purchase because it then becomes real money gaming, basically. And so, you know, you can sell you can sell these NFTs, but if you put them within a loot box and you can buy the currency to then go and open the loot box, you're not following the policy with an exception. In Google Play, as long 
as the value of the NFTs within the loot box have a value that's described. So this could be something like a minimum floor, pl- uh, floor price. It could be um, dynamically showing the value of the marketplace of that NFT. It sounds like you can sell NFTs in a loot box. Uh, this is to be determined, but this is my interpretation. Um, well, obviously, you can't have like a bet or an entry requirement of an NFT where you can lose it based on performance, because um, that becomes real money gaming. And I'm just going to skip to the next one like about in-app wallet integration. So this was, apart from the loot box, this was the next one that I didn't fully understand where the boundaries lie, because it sounds like being able to hold your tokens with the app store, it's okay to have your storage of your virtual currency, which seems to mean cryptocurrency, as long as it's stored by the developer of the app. And as long as the developer is uh, complying with local regulations of having a wallet and crypto. Um, and Google Play, it actually mentions that you you can allow players to purchase, hold, and exchange cryptocurrencies as long as, again, you follow the local regulations. And so I'm really curious to see how games will implement the the wallet and fungible tokens because the, the regulations for non-fungible tokens are clearer. It's when it gets to the fungible tokens and crypto, like the cryptocurrency, that honestly it gets a little bit murky to understand how we can do that implementation. But time will tell. What do you think? Can I clarify something, Maria? Yeah. You mentioned yeah. at the top um, that Apple has explicitly said no token gating of experiences. Is that Google as well? I searched through Google's policy and I couldn't find that. I'm assuming somewhere there's a clause in the policy that says that you can't unlock you can't lock content behind something that you can't buy in the app. I use the search functions and whatnot. I didn't find it, yeah. but I didn't want to explicitly say it. Well, one, because it's a poor user experience anyway. Um, but second, it kind of makes sense that you shouldn't do that. So I didn't want to you know, stay on a podcast that you can go ahead and do that. Seems like there's some benefit to that to me. Like At least that's one of the selling points of having some of these NFTs is you know, that like you have proof that you're a part of this, you know, club or this group and you, uh, by holding this token, get access to some special experience. That's at least the way it's often pitched. Right. Um, so maybe a little bit limiting, but I don't know, like it's, to me, as someone who's not actively working in the space, like you are like, feel free to correct me here, but it sounds like the most straightforward implementation is like, you can, hold these assets and maybe trade them or sell them off platform. But like, what do you, what does the NFT confer to you in the game? That's like, you know, different than a standard virtual item. Uh, well, actually in the policy of Google play, it does sound like they allow player to player trading in app, mm-hmm. as long as you're not using their payment system. And so there is some flexibility there on, on Google play. Again, I just want to disclaim this is my interpretation. Yeah, totally. Um, 
In terms of, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Could you repeat your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, like to me, like trading, okay, that's that's fine. Like there are some people who are interested in that, but I think it's yeah. really like not a huge use case in my opinion. Mm. So I'm wondering like what, what, are, what are the other reasons why a, a player might be interested in, in having this NFT functionality in their mobile game? I disagree that it's not a big benefit to players to be able to to trade or we see it as the time that you spend in your game is also something that you own. And so the time that you're putting into progressing your game, progressing your characters, that is something that you should own and be able to do with it whatever you want. Uh, and that could be you can go and sell your progression. Of course, as competitive games, you always this is like a new... Mm, thing to keep in mind when you're designing trading of progression is like it's not pay pay to win it's trade to win and so design games have to be designed with that in mind and then additionally you can still do really cool things with nfts without gating content so there are other ways that you can have that you can have a skin um we are exploring newer ways to design games with this technology. I'm not prepared to state it on a podcast because I do agree that a lot of the implementations we see with blockchain gaming nowadays, it's okay, some assets are NFTs and you can go and trade them. But there are newer things and just more innovation that is waiting to to be found and designed. And so these are the quote unquote safer approaches or the more straightforward and obvious approaches but there's some underlying fun new things that you can do okay well i'm optimistic but i'll i'll wait and see what what comes out and i think that's the right that's the right perspective and sentiment that we should all take until you see it live and executed and delivering you know a fun new successful experience then you can't state that yeah this is definitely definitely going to come true so i i appreciate and we so as someone working in the industry, honestly, like having people questioning that, it also keeps you on your toes of, True. yeah, you have to push the boundaries and be realistic and yeah, keep trying to design something new. Because Maria, like, how do you think like blockchain is enhancing the, the, the player experience and making it more fun? So if I go to a blockchain game, why a blockchain game is more fun than playing the similar game without any blockchain elements. Yeah, so I think it's fun if with some games nowadays are already available. It is fun if you're a more financially minded person, like you find it fun to be able to master this game and that brings you some financial value. And I think that's fair. That's fair for you to be that kind of player. In terms of what is like a new kind of fun. I'm actually enjoying the most the community aspect and how it could potentially impact marketing by being closer and having alignment with your community. Uh, I was working in, you know, non-blockchain mobile free-to-play games and just the environment and the connection you have with players when you're developing a new game and how you're collaborating with them is honestly really refreshing and I love it. It's just a different feel. And as someone working in games, I think sometimes games can become, they're just science, they're just numbers. 
And this is the aspect I'm loving the most about blockchain games. It's like you have a deeper connection with people. That makes sense. So, and how do you think like these policies are going to evolve? Because probably for me, it looks like it's the the beginning, and that there are going to be probably many changes, and that's also a high risk for a developer of this type of game, right? Where you base the experience in current leg legislation, and then suddenly something that you were relying on is changed, and it's changed for the bad mm -hmm. for you, and. So in your case, are That's you fair. taking any, 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 any measures to try to reduce this risk? There's also geo, geo risks. Yeah. Measures that we're taking, yes. When you're designing a blockchain game, there's like the spectrum of how far you want to dive into Web3. It's like the Web2, Web3, and it's a sliding scale between those two. And so you can mitigate risk based on how you're designing the game and how financialized your economy is. Um, and I think, like my, I don't believe that the App Store policies will change dramatically to become worse because like they're fine. I'm, this might be an unpopular opinion. And when Google Play announced its policy, I saw like a lot of people saying, oh yeah, this is amazing. This is a game changer. But after analyzing it, word by word with uh, the App Store's policy. They're both fine. Neither of them are perfect. And, you know, they're more restrictive in some senses between the two. And so as long as they stay as they are or they improve, I wouldn't consider it right now a massive risk. And seeing how the App Stores are clarifying in more detail what you can and cannot do, in my views, that's just reducing risk over time. My perception um, reading some of the news was that the Google Play announcement was being perceived as like this big step forward for uh, Web3 games coming to mobile. Do you feel like it's that much different from the Apple policies in that regard or is it relatively, you know, equally restrictive? I think they both have their own restrictions in different ways. Mm -hmm. So in Google policy, it's more flexible, like the blocking content, they're not explicit about that, but then they're more explicit with the loot boxes mm -hmm. and um, the the wallet with the cryptocurrency. But at the same time, they kind of mentioned that you can purchase an exchange cryptocurrency, but then as you know, with the app store, you can only have the payment system that is the um, app store's payment system. I'm right. super interested in seeing, uh, we actually will go into the side loading now then. Sure. I'm very interested to see how opening up these walled gardens will actually change. And I, I believe that that's where an opportunity lies. And also the policy changes towards loot boxes in general, because there's like that also happening alongside all of this. We saw that Yuki this week, they announced um, the the. It was a body of game studios in the UK who came together to design how do we make loot boxes more ethical and mitigate the gambling and the addiction issues that they can create. And so all of that's happening. And so I, well, the Google Play, the Google Play restrictions on blockchain loot boxes, I'm not surprised by them. I don't feel that they are too harsh because like there's whole other loot box regulation coming anyway and so if you're designing a free-to-play mobile game nowadays you already have to be thinking about that 
because your game is going to be out there for the next three, five years. And during that time, that policy, you know, loot boxes that we design today and the games you have today, that might not be allowed in two, three years. I don't know, Felipe, if you have a thought on that. Well, my feeling is that this aspect is moving slower than uh, what everything related to blockchain, right? So in, in blockchain, I see like changes like happening much more frequently. So that's why I consider that more risky because like the development of, of your game could be longer than what takes like changes. And also you mentioned like there are the geo uh, changes that could happen like in some years, you could have some some possibilities and not in others. My feeling is that, I don't know, at least with loot boxes, we've been discussing about it for a long time, but it's still like, it's not like a, a common agreement on that. So it feels that taking decisions on yeah. there is going to be slower and therefore maybe a bit less risky. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And in terms of the side loading, so uh, Google already allows side loading of apps. But if you're trying to install them, you just get really scary messages that are trying to tell you, don't do this, this is, this is dangerous. And I'm not saying that they don't make sense because it can be dangerous, not going through the, the store processes. And we see that the EU, um, when when is it? The enforcement at the latest will be March, 2024. But Apple, at least in the EU, will be forced to allow side, side loading of apps. I know that the US is trying it's not trying, it's exploring, potentially having a similar policy be enacted. Um, but I don't know any details on that or when it could happen. And so, yeah, on, on Apple, you'd be able to sideload. Basically, sideload, you can install an app without going through the stores, which means that you also own entirely the experience of the payments, or at least for now, that's how it is. Because Apple is exploring um, having some kind of charge where for you to be able to be sideload installed you have to pay them a fee in order for you to be a developer that's validated at least it's a fee and not a percentage but we'll have to see i will only believe it when it actually happens and we have all the details from from apple and facebook is also going to start exploring i'm not sure when but sideloading of apps by clicking on ads so that instead of like you click on an ad, it takes you to the store and then you have to click again and install. It removes one step of that top of user funnel that has a lot of uh, fall off. And so, yeah, and then it will silo the app, which is interesting. I am not super, how do you call it? I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't have a strong conviction that this is going to be a major game changer unless the install flows are less scary because there are security risks and there could be if you're not distributing on the on the stores there's discoverability issues like how do you get players to go to your website and install them yeah i'm not i'm not super excited about this so is the is the takeaway here that the the changes in um, blockchain and nft policies and the changes in sideloading approaches are related and like smaller symptoms of the larger kind of cracks in the walled garden that like the potentially like um, players will be sideloading more to access these 
um, NFT games, blockchain games, um, players will have more ability to sideload and more reasons to do so. Is that kind of the, the thought here? Uh, sideloading came before blockchain. It's, it's the sure, crack yeah. in the wall of the walled garden so that, you know, Apple's not controlling entirely what you can install within their ecosystem. Again, Google already has that, but it does come with security risks. So I, I believe that as we see today with a lot of studios doing web shops for their mobile games, where players who are really engaged and want to get the most for their money in order to progress and get an advantage in game, they will go through the friction of trying to see, hey, is there a web shop? Okay, there is. I can pay the same, get more. So I'm going to start making my purchase with more friction. And so the sideloading and Apple allowing sideloading, that is interesting in that perspective as a blockchain game. You know, you have these restrictions within the stores. And so if you have your app sideloaded, you can have the experience that you want the game to have. But again, it has the discoverability issues, it has the security issues, and so it could be difficult to gain user trust to install apps that way. Um, and so I don't think we should disregard having a blockchain game distributed on the stores. And in any case, with any policy, at least you know myself working in product, I think I should consider what the policies are. Like They've been made for a reason, and so I should reflect, okay, if they're making this restriction... Why is it, um, should we follow it? And all of these like decisions that you have to make for your product and, and your players. Any more questions on that or we move on? Sorry, I feel like we're making you the spokesperson defending uh, Web3 games. That's not my intent here. I just have a Oh, no, I hope, I hope that's not how I come across because I consider myself, I work in the space, but as you know from my history of being on the podcast, I'm sure, sure. sort of in the middle. So I... <laughs> I, I hope I don't sound like I'm a spokesperson of, you know, everything about blockchain is amazing and it has zero issues. Just as I'm not a spokesperson for loot boxes and saying that they have zero issues. Mm -hmm. All right, Matt, the discussion that we've been, uh, what was it, sneak peeking throughout. Yeah, yeah we've been alluding to this. Um, so, you know, as I was preparing for the podcast, I felt like it was a little bit of a a little bit of a slow news week. So I wanted to kind of bring up like a meta discussion related to some of these smaller headlines that we've been discussing. Um, so just to kind of review really quickly, like the the topic that Felipe brought earlier, uh, Half Moon, they, they made their game in about five months with like an AI tooling pipeline. Um, we talked about the new studio from Alex Seropian. They made their game in six months with Unreal Editor and Fortnite. Um, not too long ago, maybe a week or two, we saw news from 100 Thieves, the esports organization, that they built their own Unreal Editor Fortnite experience in, quote, just a few weeks. Um, and so we're starting to see this shrinking of um, development timelines and time to ship a product. Um, now, I'm not saying all of these games are like AAA, 100% polished, finished products, but we're seeing the, the timeline shrink. And we're also... Uh, so part of that is through the use of AI. Part of that is through the use of these UGC platforms where a lot of the assets and tools are already established and already available and very easy to use for people who are maybe not as technical uh, in training. And, and we're starting to see some companies emerge 
at the intersection of AI and UGC. So we talked about Seb Park's company, Infinite Canvas, earlier. They raised $6 million to do AI and UGC. Um, we've seen Roblox building out their AI tools. We've seen Unity building out their AI tools. I'm sure there are other companies that I'm forgetting. Um, but um, where I wanted to take this discussion is that we see that pipelines are shrink, uh, timelines are shrinking because of the um, proliferation of these tools and the ease of use of them. Um, they're accessible to a lot of uh, people and companies, a lot of creators. So what are the implications of that shrinking timeline um, on the games industry? When a game can be made in weeks or months, what does that mean for game creators? And what does that mean for players? Um, so, you know, I have a couple of quick thoughts and, and maybe I can get your all's reactions to that. So, you know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is we're going to see an overall increase in content, right? Like if you can make content faster and it's more accessible, there's going to be more of it. Um, some of it will be good, but probably a lot of it will be like mediocre or not so good. Um, and so if that's the case, we see a massive increase in quantity. Um, what is What are the implications of that? Well, then the power shifts, again, this is my hypothesis, um, towards brands towards creators, um, people, organizations that have built-in audiences to do organic discovery, organic user acquisition just comes with their brand. So 100 Thieves, for example, they say, we're going to make an experience. All of the 100 Thieves experience, uh, uh, fans rather, are going to come to Fortnite and try out their island in Fortnite Creative. Um, but if you're not one of these brands, then discovery and user acquisition becomes a major challenge, even bigger than it is already. Um, and you know, it depends what platform you're on, right? If you're on one of these UGC platforms already, Fortnite, Roblox, what have you, um, you as a creator are subject to their discovery algorithms, whatever those are, and they may not be particularly transparent to creators and how they operate. Um, they might change, uh, frequently. Uh, we've seen this on, you know, YouTube, for example, like YouTube creators, suddenly like lose a bunch of traffic when the uh, search algorithm changes. Um, so there's some platform risk there. Um, so, so maybe I'll just pause there. And those are just some of my hypotheses. What do you all think are the implications when the game development timeline shrinks this drastically and the tools and ability to create, whether it's AI or UGC, uh, become more accessible to a, a broader group of creators? Yeah, it, it was curious because when, when you were explaining all this, I started to think on hyper-casual. And then, like, hyper-casual content uh, is easy to produce. It's not because you had AI, to, AI tools. It was because they lowered the quality and they went for simple forms and shapes, right? Uh, but uh, what happened really is that uh, the entry barrier lowered a lot. And, like, smaller teams could create experiences. And as you said, like, then we had a lot of more uh, like uh, products out there. Uh, in some cases, the quality decreased. Uh, in others, like they've been also maturing as a genre and quality has been increasing. And uh, the power shift a little bit more from the developers to the, I would say, the publishers or ad networks that were really the ones that could uh, uh, solve the discoverability problem. And that's why also there are many 
hyper-casual companies that were founded by people that were like working in ad networks or owning an ad network before, or even like this integration of like companies. So yeah, I think like you're, you are right in point with, with these, I think, but I think like in general, probably the quality will increase. So this being an analogy, like these developers that like lower the quality of the content uh, to be able to make games quicker. And uh, now they could tap into AI to maintain the quality of the graphics or like even take it higher, right? So I think like that's something that could happen. And the, the, the discoverability, discoverability problem, I think it's going to be even bigger, right? Like I think right now is uh, being able to scale a game is one of the main uh, difficulties that you have because it's not like just you you create a good game and it will take off that you need to have something that really grabs the attention of the players and like be able to to be efficient with UA so things are going to become much more and more difficult on that that front i i i think like good I, I don't know i tend to be optimistic i think that this is going to bring better things in in the future uh, it's true that uh, like these better things are going to be like uh, side by side with a lot of things that are unfinished. That is like a, just a, a hobby for some people. That oh, now I can do this, and oh, look, I created a game in one week, one weekend. So yeah, I think both things are going to to be there at the same time. Yeah, I think so. T- two interesting points that you raised. Um, one is there's an important difference between making a game and scaling a game. And while maybe we can apply some AI tools to the scaling problem, um, it's less straightforward, let's say. Um, And then the second point that you made, which is like earlier in the pipeline, is it's not just about uh, speed to market, but it's also about quality. So we have two variables, which is like development time and overall quality, however you want to measure that. And to your point about hypercasual, there are already companies, studios that are at the extreme early end of um, development timeline where they're already shipping prototypes weekly or monthly. And yes, AI will help with that, but perhaps there are diminishing returns, right? You could, you're only going to shrink the development timeline so much. I don't know that we're at a point where we're developing games in shippable products in days or weeks just yet. Maybe we'll get there, but there's diminishing returns. Um, But on the other variable of quality, the floor gets raised, right? Um, With the availability of ready-made assets in UGC platforms and also the increasing quality um, of generative AI tools. Of course, we still have work to to do and, and a ways to go, but like, the floor for the quality bar will get raised. And this is, I think, a really interesting point that um, Strauss Zelnick made in in, in an earnings call a while ago that like, you know, people aren't going to just like make an AI Red Dead Redemption. You know, they're just going to increase the quality bar overall for the people that are operating that extreme end of the spectrum, huge budgets, long timelines, AAA uh, polish and scope. The quality bar for those will increase as well. So I think just the overall floor of quality increases kind of globally and the expectations for players will rise in turn. I agree. I agree with that. It will be easier, faster, 
for more people to make high quality games, but then the quality bar is just going to be raised. And so there will be a disparity. And that could also be through how are you playing the platforms, augmented reality, whatever comes next. I have I have two points. I hope I don't forget the second point whilst I'm talking about the first point. I do completely agree when you're saying discoverability is going to become an issue. I do believe that we are in a shift. We already see the growth of content creators and influencers and them just leading discoverability. I think that really taps into where we are now as a society where there is this just general craving of more human, more one-to-one connections and not just this platform or something just telling, recommending you based on algorithms. I think algorithm eras, we're kind of done with that. And now we're in a human, a human discoverability algorithm era through, through people. And when you were mentioning about um, the Fortnite creative, you know, maybe I'm just not the audience, but I think the brand of these platforms can have, it's a double-edged consequence where you may be interested of, oh yeah, I'm going to go to Fortnite Creator because I love Fortnite and I love 100 Thieves and I want to go and play it. But I don't want to go there because it's Fortnite and I don't, I, I don't enjoy personally as a player of Fortnite. Um, and so it automatically just creates this barrier in my head that I don't want to go there. I'd rather do something else with my time. And then, oh, I had a third point. In terms of AI, I'm, uh, this may change with younger generations who are growing up in this digital world and will grow up in a, an AI-powered world. But at least for me and my generation, I just have this, this feeling that given a choice of a game made by humans, by a team, like people who actually dedicated creativity and time and dedication to making the game versus a game that was mostly made by a machine. Even if the machine's game is better, I will have more enjoyment playing the game that was made by humans because they're humans. That's that's how I feel. Like if a game came up and, oh, you know, 80% of it is AI, I would maybe not play it. Um, so I feel like the, the team is the one that is creating the core experience and that they are really creative that. Creating that. It's not the AI creating that. But then they need to produce content to to have players keeping playing this uh, this loop uh, in in the long run, especially for free to play games. So this is when I think AI is really coming in. So uh, whether it's a, I don't know a puzzle game and uh, you, you leverage on AI to create more levels, and the the, the AI can learn what's an interesting level, how to make the difficulty be adjusted to the to the skill of the player, that's something that like uh, then you can enjoy more for longer, right? You don't need to wait for the developer to have the, the levels ready, and you can have more of them. Or whether it's like I don't know in in Clash Royale, like having more uh, units, different units with different behaviors, like and creating all the assets that is needed for that. So like that's where AI can really speak things things up. But I, but I think like creating the core experience is something that is still like. You need really humans to, to do that. Yeah, I like as a game developer, I'm completely on board with you about the benefits that I can bring to, to live ops. I'm just putting on my hat. I'm completely removing myself as a game developer and just thinking as a player. Even in that situation where I know that certain events and content of the game for live ops is being done by AI completely, I just lose 
the connection because when I play a game, I feel connected to who made them. I feel like the I'm here for the publisher. I'm here for the team. It's more than just the immediate enjoyment that I'm getting from it. And so this aspect that, oh yeah, AI is now making my live ops content. I, I just lose that connection with what I'm playing. It just becomes a game rather than an experience that connects me with other people. I think the, the critical assumption there is that the player is aware that there is some AI involved. I think similar to what we've seen with some of the Web3 experiments, um, developers will increasingly hide, obfuscate these elements, the, whether it's Web3 or AI, um, so that it isn't like, it's not advertised, it's not apparent to the players, it's just, this is the game, you know? Like, um, players don't question, like, was this game built on AWS or Azure or, you know, Google Cloud? Like, it just lives in the background, and I sort of view that similarly to the way that, um, you know, blockchains and, and AI will be integrated. Now, if we're talking about art, like, sometimes, right now, certainly, it's kind of obvious, like, you watch the this is kind of a silly example, but you watch the intro to Secret Invasion uh, on Disney Plus and you're like, that's definitely AI, 100%. Um, you know, for some people that's a turn off, other people don't care. But I think there are, let's say, gray areas where AI will definitely be used, but it won't be front and center and it won't be obvious to the players how it's being used. And so players just won't ask that question, I, I don't think. Uh, I was going to say that I think like it will also unlock things uh, that were impossible to do before, right? Like having greater deal of personalization. So right now, when you are producing a game, you need to focus on uh, like I don't know, a person that you are going to focus your game and create the the best experience for that kind of average person, right? But because you cannot, I don't know, uh, design like uh, hundreds of uh, characters that are really personalized to the experience of the players or like the like, the like what the players like. And like, I don't know, that having real choices, meaningful choices, right? Uh, that could really create a new different experience for, for your game. This is something that I think with AI will be possible because you are not so limited by the, the content. Well, I'll ask the question that I was asked about blockchain. Is that truly new and do players have fun in a different way? Because what we've been discussing here is mostly it brings a benefit to the game developer and not really to the player apart from, you know, more games at high quality, potentially, and games developed faster for the IPs they love. So, yeah, well, is this new fun? And are we sure players want to have a game experience that is different and lose the common shared experience? That's 100% a fair question. Um, you know, I think we touched on it maybe like an episode or two ago when I was on. We talked about hidden door games and their kind of AI-assisted mm-hmm. um, like narrative games and like what is the what is the core loop like? You know, some of these experiences like AI Dungeon, for example. Yeah, there's a lot of AI involved, but it gets old really quickly because there's no like compelling loop or compelling reason to continue or like what do I get by getting this super personalized super customized endless experience Um, I'm not really sure that that's been answered yet and it's a totally fair question Um, and it's on developers to figure out the best way to implement it I think it's probably leaning into 
personalization really heavily. I, I, I'm speculating here, but like it's, you know, how do you make an experience for the player that is um, custom built for them, but it still follows these uh, maybe like a, a more handcrafted game loop or meta system. Um, but like the kind of moment to moment interactions are a little bit more personalized, but I don't, again, I, I think it's a great question. I don't think it's been answered yet. Um, it's, the, the, the big um, thought behind this topic was, as you say, developer-oriented, not player-oriented. It's talking about getting products to market quicker. But um, I don't know. The, the player experience, I don't know that that's been proven out just yet, but certainly there are a lot of people trying. Well, I would say two things. So the first one, I feel like the personalization doesn't need to just be cosmetic. So it could be that, I don't know, the parameters of the game are like adapted to your style of playing so like you can really be all the time in the flow by playing the game because like this adapted to you and i don't know like maybe five configurations that the game has uh, is not like nothing suiting you because okay normal is too easy hard is too hard and i need something in the middle so that's something that it could be really uh, been adapting or i don't know even like in at the boss level. So I'm good uh, playing against this boss because it's more using arrows and I'm good at that, but I'm really bad in like uh, close fights. And then the, the, the difficulty of the bosses adapt to your skills as a, as a player, right? So I think that that's one way of personalization that could really enhance the, the experience. And when it comes to producing the games, uh, I think like AI, at least like the way that that we are using and we are just scratching the surface is that it helps us to uh, dedicate more time to being creative and not so so much time to waiting to see something like how it could look like and understanding if that could work or not. We we speed up that process and we are not using it to speed up production. It's just to speed up the creative process so you could really... In, in less time, understand if that idea goes in the right direction and or not. And then that allows you to focus more time in really having experience or improving the experience or uh, getting a, a better product. So I, I would say in that front, maybe the, the results for the place is not so obvious, but I think in the long term it's going to, to be there. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I just really challenge the idea that players want personalization at that level. I see it. Maybe you'll have a, a difficulty choice where you can choose, hey, adapt to my skill, but word it in a nice way. I just think the enjoyment of games is sharing the experience with other people and be able to have those conversations where you're like, oh, did you pass that level? No, I went and did this. And I, oh, okay, I'm going to go and try. And then, oh, no, I didn't manage to do it. Can you jump in and help me? And so it's all about everyone's an equal footing, foot, footing of the experience. And this is why we see like Elden Ring. It became, it was more than a game. It was a community experience, a community race of discovering together because it was shared. And so... Maybe I do believe like some kind of some games will be good with that level of personalization and there's a space for them. I just really challenge that it is a good thing as a blanket rule because it will affect that that shared common experience. But we're running, we're running out of time. So you have to move on to our last favorite subject, which is the Activision Blizzard acquisition. I think Felipe, you're leading this one. Yeah. 
Yeah, so did many news on on the on this front. So um, the end of last week, I think it was like uh, good news for Activision in the US. Uh, well, Microsoft and Activision in the US because uh, the um, the blocker that they had there from the FTC was rejected. So it feels like that there is no uh, impediment for for them to to fulfill the the merge in 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 the US. And as a result of that, indeed, the the Activision uh, stock raised, uh, I think, like ten percent. So it was really perceived as like passing the one, almost the last uh, hurdle in order to get to the to the end of this uh, soap opera. And indeed, this is also maybe reflected by Sony finally uh, signing a deal with with Microsoft. Uh, to keep Call of Duty on, on PlayStation. So that was uh, news earlier this, this week. Um, and it was after all this, uh, uh, the, the court rejected the, the Federal Trade Commission attempt to delay the, the deal. Um, the, the details of the, of this, of the deal with, uh, between Sony and Microsoft uh, haven't been shared. Uh, I have heard rumors, but it's only rumors that uh, the deal is worse that, than what was offered a year ago when all the uh, discussions about the merger started, uh, saying that uh, now the deal only includes Call of Duty, whereas before it includes Call of Duty and all of Activision uh, Blizzard games. So but I guess that's the thing, right? When, when you uh, bet hard on, on one outcome and it doesn't and that way, then you, you need to to then change your your level of uh, ambition. And the other the other news related to this is that yesterday was the well, this is uh, the the eighteenth. Just the eighteenth of July was the uh, last day to to get the agreement uh, for the merger done, and it didn't happen, of course, because we are still waiting for uh, the UK uh, CMA to. Uh, approve or at least like uh, uh, reach an agreement with Microsoft uh, of some terms on how to to make the, the merger not a, not a risk for cloud cloud gaming so uh, on that front uh, they both announced today that Microsoft and Activision Blizzard have agreed to extend their merger agreement until October 18th. Uh, because uh, they are still negotiating with the UK and they both still want to make the agreement a reality. They have uh, increased the, the termination fees if anybody wants to walk away from the deal and they are going to be increasing over time until September 15th if the deal hasn't finalized by then. Uh, and also Activision has agreed to potentially separate certain assets or implement other low flat alternatives to complete the merger with the UK regulators. So I don't know how you see, but I feel like this uh, soap opera is coming finally to an end and uh, the end is almost like pretty, pretty, pretty clear, at least like this is also the feedback that we see from the markets really, really, really positive with Activision stock. So. Any thoughts? Do you think like we will be speaking more about this in the podcast, or is this the last entry finally? I, I think we're going to keep talking about it. Unfortunately, like there's, it's yeah. it's been extended a few months, so for sure we're going to have at least one more episode where it's like it's done, it's finally closed, the UK has signed yeah. off. 
if that ever comes. So yeah. I think, you know, maybe more to come, but like the, the last piece, as you pointed out, Felipe is like, what is the, what is the specific remedy going to be for the UK market? Um, but to your point about the markets and the stock price, um, I was just looking The Activision shares are like $92 at this recording and the uh, acquisition price was 95 a share, I believe. So certainly up from where it was not too long ago, but for whatever reason, still a bit of a gap there. Yeah, I really hope the CMA will come to an agreement because it would really be a shame that everyone gets the benefits of the acquisition and then us here in the UK, sad, sad times. Yeah. I I I I believe that change will happen, to be honest. I don't think the CMA would want that for the UK and its players. But we'll have to see. Can't be sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think we'll wrap up here unless uh, Matt, Felipe, you have anything to add? Good. Uh, Felipe, I can't see you <laughs> because of the delay, but I, I'm oh. going to assume you did a thumbs up. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for joining and thank you for having me here as a backfield host. It was lovely to be back on the panel and I hope you all have a really nice day. Bye, everyone. Yeah. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.